Welcome to Eat, Drink, Innovate, the podcast about food startups, innovators and entrepreneurs who are making their mark in Australia's dynamic food and beverage industry. The future of food is happening here. Come join Susie White at the table to eat, drink and innovate. Aha! Hi everyone, I'm Susie White, a product innovation coach, author and podcaster in the food and beverage industry from Melbourne, Australia. Today, I'm talking with Francisco Caffarina. He's the co-founder with Michael Harder of Sproutstack. It's an indoor farming business that's set to revolutionise the way fresh produce is grown and distributed in Sydney. In this episode, you'll hear how Francisco and Michael are driven to overcome the challenges of weather disruption, climate change, and food miles that face traditional crop growers. Their combined skill sets in agricultural science, electrical installation, and construction made an ideal partnership to launch their ag tech startup, Sproutstack. Together, they created an indoor farm in used shipping containers and filled them with vertical stacks of hydroponic trays. These containers create a climate-controlled environment in which their microcrops can be watered, nurtured and regulated using integrated computer technology. As a result, Sproutstack farms can be set up and relocated in highly populated urban areas like Metro Sydney, so that fresh produce is grown locally and close to its end users. And in the aftertaste section, I share the 10 different ways you could be more innovative in your own business. So welcome to the podcast today, Francisco. Hi, Susie. Great to be talking to you today. Great. It's always helpful to set the scene first for our listeners. I'd love to know that moment that you started Sprout Stack and maybe tell us a little bit about what you did before. Was there a moment of inspiration? Was it an idea you always had? Were you always a farmer? Tell us about that very first startup stage. Absolutely, absolutely. So um, I guess that there wasn't that uh, light bulb moment with me thinking about uh, how am I going to start this company uh, rather than being... um, ideas and experiences that I've had throughout the years in my uh, time working in agriculture. So I'm, I'm, I'm an agronomist, an engineer by trade, and I've spent a uh, long time working in related to ag. Even before leaving uni, working in my, my family business, which is an agricultural business, and then spent time working in intensive cropping, uh, such as blueberries and, and citrus production. Uh, before moving downstream towards roles related to distribution and supply chain of, of this type of products. So uh, over all this time, I've been you know, becoming aware of how, how inefficient and wasteful this industry can be and you know, how could it be done better from the producer point of view or from the retailer point of view. And the reality is that there's no easy solution. Uh, and then later uh, moved uh, to Sydney, where I live now, and talking to, to some Aussie friends, having similar thoughts and thinking how uh, this, this problem, which is a big problem, could be tackled. Um, I came across the concept of indoor farming, which is not a new concept by any means. It's been around for 
for a few decades already. The, the, the only thing is that it hasn't been able to be done in a financially viable way and in a scalable way. M- my friend Michael, who's my co-founder at Sproustack, um, has a background in manufacturing and construction and automation and technology. And my background is completely different in, in the technical side of things. And I know uh, quite well from inside how the supply chains work. So we, we thought, look, w- w- why don't we try and build something, you know, by innovating in how this uh, fresh produce is grown and distributed applying the, the maximum level of technology available, which has come a long way in the last, would say, five or 10 years, and try and make that viable. So that's basically how Browstack came together about three and a half years ago, and, and we started working on, on, on this concept. And that is the perfect segue to ask, what do you mean by when you say this term indoor farming? Firstly, what does that mean? And then why would you be looking at indoor farming as a solution to maybe helping with food production versus the traditional farming techniques? Well, that, that, that's, a, that's a great question and, and sometimes not extremely easy to answer, but basically our definition of indoor farming is growing uh, plants indoors without the use of natural light. So we grow plants in in a room that could have different sizes and where we control all the conditions and we can give these crops perfect conditions for growth. Instead of using sun, we use artificial lights. Um, One of the big technological breakthroughs that has enabled indoor farming was the advancement in in LED lights, light emitting diodes lights that produce less heat and uh, much more output per unit of energy consumed that uh, changes radically the, the, the economics of indoor farming, together with a whole bunch of other sensors and technological tools that assist uh, in automating and controlling very efficiently the growing process. So when, when, you, when you ask me about what are the advantages of, of growing indoors, I would say that you can grow food anywhere at any time. Um, and that means you can set up indoor farming systems, irrespective of the quality of the soil, the availability of water, irrespective of climate conditions, and the same crops can be grown year-round with no seasonality and without any weather risk. Weather risk is, is a very common term in agriculture, but consumers may not be too familiar with it, but that is basically uh, what's the risk of the weather playing out in a way that affects your production. Too much rain, too little rain, uh, too much cold, too much heat, a cyclone, a flood, etc. All things that have become a lot worse in the recent years due to the climate crisis. So uh, that is something that is an extra advantage of indoor farming. I apologize because I feel like I did throw you under the bus with that one. It's such a huge question. Yes. I feel like also you've been very modest in the benefits there about indoor farming because I think a lot of people are hailing it as the future in terms of crop security and sustainability, aren't they? Because it's a means of producing food that has less 
of an impact on the environment simply because um, it, it's an internal space, it's close to urban centres usually, you've got less food miles, it's more efficient use of energy, the food can be more natural, there's less use of pesticides. So there's just sort of a lot of, lot of benefits, it seems, around indoor farming. Let's talk about the moment when you and Michael got together and made this a reality. I mean, it's a pretty big leap from saying we kind of work for other companies and we work in this space to we're going to start a business up ourselves in an indoor farm. How did you even know what to do first? Well, that's exactly how you said. It's, it's a big change. It opens up a world of, of thoughts as how, how do you approach this process. The way we did was basically the combination because we have different uh, backgrounds and different uh, skill sets, we kind of went in, in two different ways, always to, always working as a team. But my approach was to research, do tons of research. And that's something that I would recommend to anyone uh, looking at starting any company is do research. Because a lot of the information is out there. You just have to find it and process it in a way that makes sense to you. And that will save you an awful lot of time and mistakes and, and, and money at the end of the day. Um, while at the same time, Michael started experimenting with, okay, how are we going to build this? How is this going to work? Uh, what's the most efficient way of doing it? How do we get more plants in the same space? Uh, because that, that would increase our output. And uh, kicking off the trials and the, the, what we call it R&D, it, it's, it's different than perhaps other startups that can test things quicker. We still have to respect the biological cycles. And if you want to try something with a radish crop, we still have to do the full radish cycle and get to the results and test the quality and test what the output was and only then come to any sort of conclusions. Let's dive into that because... I can imagine there's many different ways you could have executed an indoor farm, and I'm particularly interested in yours. Am I right in thinking you decided to use repurposed shipping containers? And could you walk us through what one of your indoor farm looks like? Yes. So our farms are based in shipping containers, which are repurposed after a number of years. The maritime companies have to you know, recycle them, and we are one of the few people that buy them. Why we decided to go with shipping containers was that um, they are a very readily available structure that comes already insulated and it's standardized for manipulation and transportation that gives us a whole bunch of benefits. Like now, for example, where we are in the process of moving from one warehouse to another one. So we just pick up the farms, put them on a track, and, and ship them to a new location. That is a, a great benefit to have and makes our lives a lot easier where we can do that without even affecting our production capabilities. But also shipping containers gives us the ability to grow in a modular way, in the sense that we have one, once we build that, goes into production, we sell that produce. Once that is fully sold, we build the next one. So financially and from a risk point of view, it's a very efficient way of deploying our very limited capital, I would say. So um, that, that re has really worked for us. 
And if I was to walk down, is it literally stacks upon stacks of plants? Is that how you lay it out inside the container? Yes, exactly that. So it's basically, there's a hallway in the center and there's pretty big shelves on both sides that stack in six layers. And at any point in time, we, we can have up to 10,000 plants growing at, you know, in different stages of the cycle. And all that is climate controlled. Uh, both temperature, humidity, and CO2 levels are tracked and controlled. And the light comes from uh, LED lights that are very particular. So when you walk in the farm, it's very hard to see because these lights only uh, emit red and blue light. So everything looks pink. And it's very hard to see uh, the, the green color of the plants. It's, it's a bit tricky, but looks very futuristic. And let's talk about the plants themselves then. So how did you decide or know what to grow? And you, you talked about this a little bit earlier about you waiting for the radish cycle and the growth and seeing would the crop grow. How did you decide what to grow and did you work out what would work well and what didn't work so well? Uh, well, we are in that process. And, and to be honest, Susie, I don't think that process will ever be finished, right? There's a lot of experimentation and coming up with the crops that we think that are not grown efficiently in the current market and then going back to our clients and getting their feedback and then refining whether that is you know something specific with the quality or they want it a little bit bigger a little bit smaller or they want a different variety or there's just not interest for that so even though there's a lot of research going beforehand then there is a feedback loop that we have to go through a few times and get that. And we do rely a lot on our partners and distributors. We are constantly uh, trialing uh, new varieties, new crops, and new ways of uh, making our products better and getting new products on the market. As you say, it does rely on the crop and how well it grows, but also, of course, what your clients want and what they can use. Looking at your website, you seem to specialize at the moment in produce like wheatgrass and microgreens, and you have something called a living salad. Tell me about the living salad. <laughs> that's a great product, to be honest. That's one of my favorites, but the reality is we're not commercializing a whole lot of them right now. And that's to be fair, our first product, that's the product that we, uh, we kind of broke the rule just said. And we, we thought, look, this product is great. We did it and we went out and then we hit a brick wall because it was like people were not really expecting that. They didn't necessarily know what to do, how to consume it, what's the benefit. So we, we learned a lesson with, with living salad and we realize that there is a lot of education process that needs to go with the products in explaining why this is different, how this is grown, and why they should uh, buy it. With the living salad in, in particular, the, the philosophy is a plant that is literally living, still planted in the, in the media where it's grown from a seed. So you can, you can take it home and harvest it if you need it. The plant keeps growing while it's there sitting in your kitchen counter. But the main concept is that you are guaranteeing maximum freshness, but also maximum nutritional value in your greens. Because science 
is showing us that the nutritional value of, of these crops goes through a cliff as soon as you harvest them. They lose 30% of the nutritional value in the first three days. And, and the average time between harvest to the shelf is, is about a week in Australia now. So we're, we're eating greens with about 50% nutritional value. So this is something that with the living salad would be radically different and radically, a radical improvement. But it needs to be properly communicated and it takes perhaps times for consumers to appreciate and adopt these kind of products that are so different to anything available out there. So we, we might you know, reintroduce it or re, remarket it again um, in the future. But you know, for the time being, it's there. It's, it's still some sort of flagship product, but it's, it's not the, the biggest one for us right now. It's time for a quick break now to thank our sponsor. When we come back, hear how Francisco from SproutStack leverages technology to efficiently run their ag tech startup. I'd like to say a quick thanks to today's sponsor who helped make this podcast possible, the Monash Food Innovation Centre. They can help you fast track and de-risk your new products in the Australian market or export markets like China. Did you know that only one in 10 food and beverage products survive the first year of launch? That means nine out of 10 fail. If you'd like to be one of those businesses that gets it right, then the Monash Food Innovation Center can help. It has cutting edge technologies, product development services, and runs capability workshops to upskill business owners and employees in the art and science of food innovation. Whether you're a food startup or a large corporation, check them out at www.foodinnovationcenter.com and see how they can help grow your business through innovation. Welcome back. We've heard how Francisco and Michael from SproutStack broke the rules on conventional farming by creating a hydroponic farm inside a shipping container. And so I asked Francisco just how important was integrated technology in running their business efficiently? Oh, it's absolutely critical. I would say technology is the, the, the single thing that makes the biggest difference in our operation. Uh, if we didn't have some of the technological tools that we use, we wouldn't be able to operate efficiently. On the software that runs the farms that automates most of the of the actions that need to happen uh, every day or every hour to the sensors that collect information and let us know that everything is under control or, or not and we need to go and do something to a lot of technological things that are not by itself groundbreaking technologies but they need to come together and be integrated in a smart way to make these farms operate efficiently. Now, you mentioned before also that what you grow really depends on what your clients are after. Who are you selling to? Who are your clients for your indoor farm products? I think that middle-aged to young people seeking for healthy options and convenient options, everyone is very interested in sourcing local food, food that comes from as close as possible to where they live, which is a way of having access to fresher product, healthier product, but also supporting 
the local economies and the local communities. And if that's your end consumer, do you have a sense of your ideal channel to get to those consumers? Francisco, are you sort of talking to food service suppliers or you mentioned distributors before? Is, it, is, this, a, is this a restaurant style product or a cafe product? What do you think? I, I think it's both. At the moment, we are quite focused on consumer products through retail channels. And that is working really well for us because it's got the, the, the right combination of volume and margins. And um, at the moment, we're working with a supermarket chain, a, a small supermarket chain. But I do think that there is demand for our products from food service channels. And that is something that we did a little bit of in the early days. We went direct to restaurants and we did at some point we were supplying a some 10 local restaurants in our area. And that was great. You know, getting that first-hand feedback has been very valuable for us, but it was a nightmare. Servicing the restaurants that were texting us orders in the middle of the night and then complaining about some products that we may not have on stock. Um, so it, it was a nightmare to, you know, service them fulfill those orders and, and and the logistics was crazy. You know, delivering relatively small value orders and driving around, it was very time consuming, uh, but we wouldn't do that necessarily again in the same way. I think there is, given the, the, the feedback that we've had, I think there is a value proposition, but we would do it through a distributor. Was it at that stage when you tried that with the local restaurants or cafes, was that you and Michael actually having to hand deliver and fulfill those orders? Uh, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of that was the two of us. Um, and we always had a, a little bit of help, but it's always been a very, very small team. Uh, even, even today, it's a small team. So we're, we're all very, very much hands-on. And let's talk about the retail supermarket chain then. Is that, a, is that again, a statewide or a local distributional or have you gone national with that? No, no, we haven't. We haven't. So I guess part of the philosophy of Sprafstag is that it's locally grown. And that's one of the things that where we think that most of the value resides. And we thought that, look, Sydney is uh, for the time being big enough for us. We think we still have uh, a long way to go here. And eventually, we would take our expansion on a city by city basis. Where you know we could have farms deployed in different cities, supplying always locally, rather than having one big farm in Sydney and then shipping to Melbourne or or Brisbane. Because th- that's exactly what we're trying to to not do, right? We're trying to avoid. Absolutely. Uh, you make it sound so easy. We've we got distribution and supermarket chain, but I'm imagining that would have been a, a tricky selling because there are some pretty big salad producers already in Australia. And some of them are also have quite strong agreements to be the private label salad providers also for, for the supermarket chains. What was sort of your conversation like and how did you manage to convince those retailers that, that your offer was sufficiently different? Well, that, that's a good point. And it was definitely not easy. <laughs> it, was, it was very hard, but it was also uh, groundbreaking for us to, to get that agreement in place. I, I guess what, what made the difference was to bring these people into our farm and show them how we grow it, how different it is, explain the differences. And that's something that really made the difference because 
makes people believe in the product beyond just looking at the package or or the price or the margin. And, you know, a, a lot of a lot of the conversations are very driven by the economics of the product, and we need to find a way of removing that conversation and kicking that to to the last minute. But initially, is look, this is how we grow our product. These are all the advantages. These are all the differences. And that is what made us get this distribution contract. I just love that approach too, Francisco, because you're right. Most people, you know, front up to the buyers, they go into their office, they take their products, they say, try them. Oh, it tastes good. You should range it because of these reasons. But actually, I really love that approach of this is a bigger issue that we're solving here than the, the taste of the product in this pack in front of you. Come back into our business and let us show you the philosophy, the technology, the benefits that we're driving that will really transform how farming is done in the future. So yeah, I, I really like that approach of getting them into your business rather than the other way around. And that's what I would really like to do with every single customer that we have or potential customer. I think that our process is all about the story that it has behind and communicating why this is different. Because if, if you don't, it's just the same as the product next to it in the shelf. And we need to find a way of getting that story to the clients and the potential clients and, 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 and everyone to understand why is this different and new. And it's funny you should say that about that awareness and, and how do you communicate? Because I did see your business featured on the SBS Small Business Secrets show. Tell me how that came about. Uh, well, they, they reached out to us uh, at the back of some other media that we had, which we, we, we've never been very active on media, to be honest. We've, we've been probably because of our backgrounds. Um, but they reached out and said, hey, we really like what you're doing. We think it's very interesting to communicate. And we're, we're running this edition on small businesses that are highly innovative and that could make an impact. We thought it was a great idea. So um, we did a piece with them. And again, the repercussion after that was huge. You know, people reaching out from, um, from schools who wanted to tour the farms and learn, and we, which we did. And it's and it's incredible. I think we, we, that's something definitely want to be active. You know, it's, it's one of the other areas where we think that Sprouts like, or, or this technology broadly can make an impact when that is, you know, education and teaching uh, kids where, where food comes from and, and how that is done. I think that's something that can uh, help kids develop an interest in, in agriculture um, so uh, we've been doing a bit of that. As you said, you, I can imagine you're so busy running the farms, <laughs> you know, making sure the crops are working, managing the technology. That piece of communication and promotion is another whole piece of work. Is that a is that a future focus for you, or have you got someone on board to help you with that now? Totally. And yeah, funny you mentioned, but that that's one of the latest hires that we've done. Someone with with, with a background in advertising communication. PR that's going to really drive that part of our business uh, going forward. So uh, yes, it's definitely a focus. Uh, we think there's a lot of work to do, with, and and it's definitely something we've been kind of neglecting, or, or, or we knew we had to do, but we were always postponing. But I think the time uh, is definitely now. 
particularly because your business, as you said, would benefit so much from telling the story. Now, you touched on a little bit earlier about, you know, you're state-based now and it's not about just shipping across the rest of Australia. What's your end vision for the, for the business, Francisco? Sort of how high is up, do you think, for the Sprout Stack? Well, when it comes to vision and where do we see or where we would like to see ourselves in five or seven or, or ten years, we would like to be a really strong brand uh, leading the, the fresh produce segment but specifically with locally grown fresh produce and sustainably grown fresh produce, which is what we do and what we think is the big differentiator. I think there's a very attractive opportunity overseas and it's a business that could be relatively easily scaled outside being shipping container based or not because of these micro trends are very clear in some places of Asia where they got huge cities that are growing and they don't have access to good quality land or water or sometimes even good quality air. Um, and they have to import uh, a huge proportion of the food they consume. So in those kind of situations, I think there's a really strong business case for indoor farming. So that, that would be the long-term goal to, to, to be able to supply firstly Australia-wide, but eventually uh, international as well. I think that's a really interesting point, you're right, because we are a bit spoilt with our land mass and quality in Australia, but there is a lot of high density urban areas, particularly overseas. Did I read that one container is equivalent to the same as two acres of crops? It's perfectly suited to those high density living situations. Yes, yes. If, if you had to run a comparison and, and making some assumptions, yes, it's, it's roughly that. Because of the six layers of plants that we grow, one upon the other and the because we give the plants ideal conditions we reduce drastically the length of the cycles so we 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 turn over those six layers a lot more so it's roughly 20 times the the area and what what advice or words of wisdom would you offer let's say we've got some other wannabe food startups or ag tech startups out there what advice would you give to them if they wanted to have a go my feedback would be research the market, research who's doing what, research what's the consumer demands, be very clear on what is the problem that you're trying to resolve. It's very easy to get tangled on different things here, different benefits there, and, and then it's not clear what's, what's the problem you're trying to resolve. Um, and then the other thing I would say is talk to your clients as early as possible get the feedback, bring it on board. Don't be afraid that that might crush your dreams because if your dreams need to be crushed, you better get that done sooner rather than later. Uh, and you know, see whether your assumptions are real or not so much. Great advice. And now how could listeners find out more about Sprout Stack and about your products and even maybe where to buy them? In terms of buying, we are supplying the whole Harris Farms chain. So any, any Harris Farms stores and a whole bunch of independent uh, retailers in the Mossman, Manly, and Brookvale area. And if you want to find more or anything specific on our products, you can go to our website, which is sprustack.co. And there's a bit more information there on how we grow uh, our products and what products we grow and what products we're supplying. And if there's anything more specific than that, 
we are always happy to receive an email through the website. Um, so that's, that would be the best way to reach out to us. Well, look, thank you so much for coming on today, Francisco. It's been an amazing discussion. We loved hearing about your journey. And um, all I can do is say, look, I wish you every success in the future. I think it looks really bright for Sprout Stack. Thank you very much, Lucy. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Aftertaste, the sweet taste of success. Thanks for sticking around. This is the part of the podcast when I think back on my chat with Francisco Caffarina from Sproutstack and reflect on a lesson from his startup journey. And today I'm going to talk about the type of innovation behind Sproutstack. As Francisco said, it's all about the story that lies behind it and communicating why this is different. Because if you don't, it's just like the product next to it on the shelf. So while getting even fresher, vegetables, salads, and microgreens is a highly desirable product benefit, an equally, if not more, motivating benefit of their business is how they're creating their product. And the fact that urban-based indoor hydroponic farms like Sproutstack can have less of an environmental impact. They use less water, less energy, result in fewer food miles, and less crop wastage. Now, that's something a lot of consumers would really want to buy into and support. And so today, I'd like to talk about the idea that not all innovation in your food or beverage business has to be centered around your product. Now, we're all guilty of doing this, myself included as product innovators, of looking first and foremost for the next innovative flavor, ingredient, or product format, or packaging type that will drive our business success. However, innovation consultants at the Dublin Consulting Group identified 10 different types of innovation and found that the more different types you use, the more successful your business is likely to be. They reviewed over 300 average performing businesses versus 200 high performing ones. And they found that the average business uses one to two types of innovation, relying about 90% of the time on product-based innovation only. And the problem with that is that product innovation is really visible. It's easy for competitors to copy, so it's difficult to hold a sustainable advantage. Whereas the higher performing businesses that Doblin reviewed used twice as many types of business innovation that were more differentiating, less visible, and harder to copy. And this translated to better in-market performance. So let's walk through the 10 different types of innovation that your food or beverage business could use. The first is profit model. That is how you make your money. For example, we'll cook at Harvest Box started off selling healthy fruit and nut snack packs via a subscription model. This helped them bank consistent monthly sales and didn't require the payment of retailer margins. The second type of innovation is network, and that's how you join with others to create value. For example, Gelato Messina runs trendy, premium and gourmet gelato stores across Australia. And they've done successful collaborations with more mainstream grocery brands like Peter's Drumstick and Arnott's Tim Tams. 
These have increased the awareness and consumption for Messina of their retail stores, while also providing gourmet and contemporary brand cues to the grocery brands they work with. The third type of innovation is structure, and that's how you might align your talent or your assets across your business. For example, Carmen's, a very well-known muesli and snack company in Australia, focuses its efforts and investment into consumer insights, product and recipe development, and brand building, and uses co-manufacturers to make their products. The fourth type of innovation is process. And that's how do you develop and create your offerings. Now, this is the underlying benefit of Sprout Stack that Francisco was talking about. The fact that their fresher crops are grown using indoor farming with a lighter and more sustainable environmental impact. The fifth type of innovation that your business might use is the product performance. It's the one we all use the most, and that's how do you differentiate your product or service offering. For example, remember Morgan Hipworth from Bistro Morgan, who created those amazing artisanal donuts that were almost an art form compared to their everyday donut competitors. The sixth type of innovation is called product system, and this is all about how you create complementary product or services. Jackie Harvey from Yarra Valley Gourmet Foods was really good at this. She was very selective about optimizing her portfolio of salad dressings, condiments, vinegars, relishes, and sauces to ensure she satisfied a diverse range of customer taste preferences. The seventh type of innovation that you might leverage is, of course, service. How can you enhance the value of your offering? Have you tried Cadbury Joy Deliveries yet? It's an online store that allows you to customize gift boxes of Cadbury chocolates with the name or a message of your choice. So it's providing a greater service, and that is thoughtful customization for those who are willing to pay for it. The eighth type of innovation that you might use in your business is your channel, and that's how you connect with your customers and users. For example, Ashley Whitaker from SnackProud, she created a whole new sales channel by delivering curated boxes of healthier snacks directly into workplaces. The ninth type of innovation is brand, and that's how you represent your offer and business. Do you recall Corinne Noyes of Madame Flavor Specialty Teas? She brought her brand to life by writing and including a hand-signed letter in the tea boxes at launch. And even to this day, people still think that she is Madame Flavor. And the last type of innovation that you might choose to leverage in your business is customer engagement. And that's about how you might foster a distinctive experience. At SproutStack, Francisco does this so well when he invites customers and stakeholders into the indoor farm operations so that they can see and experience the tangible benefits and innovative way in which they're running their business. So what does this all mean for you? Well, while you may have a really nifty product-based innovation, The challenge here is to keep looking for opportunities to stretch and expand with other types of innovation so that you can create something that's enduring, bigger, more newsworthy and harder for your competitors to emulate. If you're looking for more information about the 10 types of innovation, I'll include a link in the episode show notes to the Doblin website and book about this topic. 
And of course, I'd love to hear from you. What types of innovation have worked for you? And are you driving innovation across your business and not just through product changes? Feel free to get in touch and let me know how you're going. Simply call the Eat, Drink, Innovate podcast hotline on 613-88444-823 and leave me a message. That's it for this episode. Many thanks again to my guest today, Francisco Caffarino of Sproutstack, for sharing his innovative ag tech startup story with us. And thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please be sure to tell a friend or colleague and join me next time to eat, drink and innovate. Do you have any suggestions about successful food or beverage entrepreneurs and innovators in Australia that you think Susie should be talking to? You can get in touch with her at eatdrinkinnovate.com.au forward slash podcast and find all the show note links and innovation resources there too. And if you like this podcast, please help others discover it by leaving a review on Apple Podcast, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts from. 